When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends of the Rockney cast, I got 1877 on my mind. I've been thinking about the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877 a lot lately. I've been rooming about, ruminating about it, thinking about it, thinking about what it means and thinking about how it's continuing to affect us up until the present moment. Why do I care about the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877? Why am I even thinking about that or sharing this with you? Well, I think the moment we're in right now, in terms of our political disunion, arises directly from the decisions that were made by those men in the back rooms in 1877. So in this particular podcast, I'm going to explore not only the Hayes-Tilden Compromise of 1877, but I'm also going to give you a little bit of a background in terms of the events that led up to that how they got there, and why it's so important in the present moment to understand what happened. Because I think it's a lot, you know, I've been doing a lot of podcasts lately on health. I think history is the same way. Each moment that we're at right now, we need to look at the underlying root causes of how we got here. Because I think I'm going to also offer a solution at the end of this podcast that really arises directly out of one of the failures of the federal government in the 1860s that they never kept their promises, right? Especially the people of color. And so we're going to think about what that means and why this Hayes-Tilden election of 1877 is so important for understanding the present moment. So let's go back in time a little bit and talk about why that's so important and what the events were that lead up to it. Well, this period between 1865 and 1877 is oftentimes referred to as the Reconstruction Period. During the Civil War, it lasted for um, from 1861 to 1865, one of the most bloodiest wars in American history. Um, and we saw in certain of those battles during the Civil War, um, we saw casualties exceeding in certain battles, for example, like Shiloh or Gettysburg, more men killed during those battles than, in some cases, all the rest of the previous American wars combined. Death and destruction beyond the beyond imagination in which the United States struggled over America's original sin, the evil of slavery, something that had infected our body politic from its origins in which we went to war and killed hundreds of thousands of people to root it out. And through great leadership like Ulysses S. Grant and the leadership of Abe Lincoln and, and a lot of the, the, the freed slaves and the abolitionists, we worked together, we fought hard, we struggled hard, and we won. But it was not inevitable. It was not inevitable. And one of the things that Lincoln made a decision in the 1860s is while the war was occurring, would we have an election? 
Or would we just basically declare martial law and, and postpone the election until the war was over? And he said, no, we're going to have an election in 1864 while the, while the war is going on. And we're going to connect that to why that's important to this disputed election of 1877 because it has to do with who Abraham Lincoln selected as his vice presidential running mate in 1864. That's how the war could have been lost. It wasn't that the South would ever be able to defeat us militarily. They had no chance. They did not have the economy. They did not have the infrastructure. Eventually, on the battlefield, the United States was going to win. But the South had two key things going for it. One, have you ever been to the East Coast? <laughs> it's, it's woodsy there. And those woods aren't like these gentle Midwestern woods. These are thickets. And there's the Appalachian Mountains. So there's all, and have you ever been to an Alabama forest or an Arkansas forest or a Mississippi forest along the Mississippi River? There's swamps, there's snakes, there's, it's not easy to get around. So if you control the railroads and you can control in a defensive posture a lot of the um, entry points into the South, you, you can maybe checkmate. You, you can maybe at least get a tie and make it look like to the North that the only way you'd be able to win would be through losing another 100, 200, 300,000 men. And so they always sort of knew. And the thing is with the South, even though they did not have the, the, the economy, they had the military leaders. They had some of the best generals. And so even though, and they had a very much of a, of a culture that celebrated war, that celebrated being daring, that celebrated you know, having a sword at your side. And, they, and they, were, they, were, they were good fighters. They were, and they were also good guerrilla fighters too. Okay, Now don't mistake me celebrating their military acumen with their morals. I think that they were on the wrong side of history. They do rival. I don't think they're as bad, but they do rival some of our worst um, examples of, of history. So I'm not defending them at all, but they were effective leaders. And here's how the war could have been lost. And then here's why it's important to the election of 1877. It could have been lost during this election of 1864 because the guy that was running against Abraham Lincoln was his old rival, George McClellan. We talked about him in my podcast on Grant when I talked about my man crush. Here's the deal with George McClellan. You know, every high school, you got that guy that is good looking. He's smart. He gets all the girls. He's dashing. Well, that was George McClellan. He was originally appointed in 1861 uh, to be the leader of all Union forces on the East Coast. He had had a lot of experience in the private sector. He was dashing. He looked good. He looked the part. If you were to pick what a general would look at, you would pick this guy. It turns out he was not a very good general. And the guy that was a really good general was a guy named Ulysses Les Grant, who I really love. I'm, I'm a U.S. Grant guy. And Grant was sort of dumpy wasn't very charismatic. He's, I think he was sort of a handsome guy, but he was not nearly as dashing as George McClellan. And you, Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln was charismatic in his own way, but he wasn't exactly telegenic either. And hey, I'm not knocking telegenic people. I, the camera does not love me. 
I had a friend once who said that, uh, Rock, you, you, you have a, a radio voice, but you also have a radio face. And I was like, hmm, a compliment and an insult at the same time. But hey, friends, you are here. You are listening to my radio voice. That's another topic. So we get to the election of 1864. And the issue is, is who's going to win that election? And the battles were going well. Um, the, the military scene in 1864 is you basically had Grant being recruited by Lincoln because he had so much success in Shiloh and in Vicksburg and Fort Donelson. Best tackle general by far. But he comes to the East Coast and it's sort of like, you know, the BCS football. You know, where it's like, hey, man, you're not going up against some, you know, dumpy general on the west part of uh, the Confederacy. You're going up against Robert A. Lee, which, again, morally suspect guy. But we're talking about probably one of the best tactical generals in the United States history, right? He was on the wrong side of history, but he was extremely effective. And he had the allegiance of his men. And he had one thing going for him. He had a defensive posture. By 1864, he knew that they would not be able to do any further invasions of the North. But he did think that maybe, just maybe, if we would dig in, he knew the South, he was from Virginia, and he had a bunch of soldiers that would follow him till the last dog died. They would stay with him forever. He knew that if he could just dig in enough... And if you're in a defensive posture and you have these 19th century, even rifles, it's hard to win when you're on the defensive and behind a pit. And you started seeing the beginning of the trench warfare that you saw subsequently in World War One, where it was virtually impossible to do a frontal charge. Because prior to that time, with the military technology that they had, you could just throw a bunch of men at a position, and eventually you're going to overwhelm the position because you just couldn't reload quick enough. Well, by that time in 1864, you couldn't do that. You could grant, there's a battle called Cold Harbor where Grant tried just that, and he lost like 1,500 killed in, in an hour. And Grant knew this, and even though he was tactically a brilliant general, <clears throat> he couldn't just throw a lot of men at what was happening in, in Virginia. And he tried to do that. And he was sort of getting bogged down. And so Lincoln is thinking this. He's thinking he's going against George McClellan in 1864 presidential election. And McClellan was part of this northern faction that said, hey, man, we, can't, we cannot win this war. We've been at it. Remember, we know that they just had a year left to fight. But in 1864, it could have been a 20-year war. I mean, it could have been North Korea, South Korea where you just all of a sudden have a line that hardens, and then that, that's it. And the fear was, is that McClellan, who was dashing, charismatic, man, I mean, I even got a little man crush on McClellan. I see his, oh man, this guy, he's a, he's a matinee idol. Military, and he had some military success. He won Antietam. It was a total failure. Uh, he did some good things in 1862, and, and he did have a lot of connections in the business community because, remember, in the 1850s, he had experience in uh, business and in the railroad. So he had capital support. The no North was getting uh, tired. People were losing their lives. 
And the other thing that he played upon, it's sort of proto-Trump, McClellan played upon white fears because although there was a lot of really powerful abolitionist movements, McClellan knew what happens the day after we win the Civil War. What are we going to do with all these emancipated blacks? Are they going to come north? All of what he played upon those fears and he said, hey, maybe we just cut a deal with the South. That was his thing and we'll stop the killing We'll call an armistice, and we'll maybe negotiate a peace. And the other thing that he was worried about, how long is Britain? How long is France? How long are they going to stay on the sidelines before they maybe intervene on behalf of the South? Because remember, the Industrial Revolution is in full swing in England, in France, and the South is a supplier of one of the most valuable commodities in the Western world, cotton. So there was a lot of different ways in which Abraham Lincoln could have lost that war, and he knew that he could not win that election, running as a Republican and without some support from the South. So he made a very fateful choice, and the Republican leadership did. One, they got rid of the name Republican Party, and they rebranded it as the National (laughs) Union Party, and he picked a slaveholder. Let me state that again. He picked a slaveholder as his running mate, Andrew Johnson. Why would he do this? Well, now, in fairness, Johnson was not a slaveholder at the time he had picked him, but he had just obtained and freed his slaves a couple years prior, and he also was individually involved in persuading Lincoln to exempt Tennessee from the Emancipation Proclamation because it was not militarily necessary. Lincoln picked Andrew Johnson, and that pick was a fateful choice for the history of our republic. Well, why would Mr. Emancipator pick a slaveholder. Well, a a recently former slaveholder. I think he reached a top of 10 slaves, but he, and he had liberated them, but only relatively recently and only relatively, uh, you know, reluctantly. But the reason why Lincoln had to hold his nose and did it is that he needed the votes. Andrew Johnson had one rede- he had two redeeming qualities that made him the perfect candidate to be the vice presidential candidate. One, he was a Democrat, so Lincoln had to hold his nose and get a Democrat. But more importantly, he was loyal to the Union. He was a Unionist Democrat. And so as a result of that, Lincoln felt, because remember, he had to worry about those border states that had not succeeded and where their, where their sympathies lied. And one of the ways that he kept in those northern border states, Kentucky, uh, Maryland, Delaware, is that he agreed not to touch early on in the Civil War slavery where it then already existed, right? Um, and he also exempted those border states 
from the Emancipation Proclamation because they had remained loyal to the Union. And to secure their support, he felt he needed to pick Andrew Johnson to be his vice presidential mate, running mate. And that was a fateful decision. Because, you know, Lincoln knew he couldn't pick, you know, William Lloyd Garrison. There were probably a lot of other candidates that would have been much more talented. I can think of like a James Garfield, uh, Rutherford Hayes, who we'll see later in 1877. These deep abolitionist principles, but you're not going to win an election in 1864. You're not going to carry the states that you need to carry by picking an abolitionist. He was tactical. He picked Andrew Johnson. And after he did that, things went favorably on the battlefield. Sherman secured Atlanta. Sherman crushed uh, the Southern armies um, in Southeast United States. Sherman did his famous march to the sea. Grant gradually made progress to get closer and closer to Richmond in the fall of 1864. And by that time, it was a matter of time. Um, but Johnson is on, the, is on the ticket, and it worked to some degree. I mean, Lincoln won overwhelmingly. He crushed George McClellan. See, not only he had fired him, but he actually crushed him. But Lincoln did not think he was going to win that election. Even up through September, August, September of 1864, he was already talking about how he would support the next presidency. But he won, and he picked a racist, a white supremacist, and a slaveholder as his vice presidential running mate. I'll leave you to think about whether that was a good idea or not. The only thing I would caution you is what would have happened had he picked an abolitionist. Like, what if he had picked Frederick Douglass? What if he had picked, he probably would have lost. And he would have had George McClellan, and George McClellan would have sued for peace. Because the other thing is that although it appeared that we were going to win, Lee was still a very formidable formidable force. He still had an army in the, the, so even even after it became a conventional battle, he still had an army, and there was there were some other armies in the theater, and we did have the whole South. And here's the other thing about the Southerners, is they were also extremely effective at guerrilla warfare. So this was something that they could have had low-grade hostilities for a substantial period of time. And as we will see, as we get into the Reconstruction period, there were these sort of little flashpoints that occurred. But so he picks Grant, so, so Lincoln picks... Uh, Andrew Johnson to be his running mate, and things continue to go favorably on the battlefield. And Union secures near total victory, and finally, uh, near Appomattox Courthouse, U.S. Grant gets victory on the battlefield, that essentially he boxes in Lee, and basically he got to the point with Lee near Appomattox Courthouse that uh, if Lee didn't surrender, it was going to be total slaughter. So Lee realized that he had to give up. But one of the things that one thing about Grant that I think is very interesting, although he's probably the greatest tactical battlefield and toughest general when hostilities were occurring, he was a really sweet guy in person to person. So it was, he was just like Lincoln in that respect. That as soon as you he defeated you, he would extend his hand to you, and usually the terms were very gracious. And he made that decision on the battlefield of 1865 to Lee. He said, as long as you surrender 
to us. We will allow you to go home, sign a parole, go back home. You can keep your rifle. You can keep your horse. And remember, it's the spring. You can get your crops in, but you just have to respect the um, laws in place as they exist and agree that there's no further insurrection. And also, we're not going to have mass retaliation against the Confederate leadership. It was a promise that he made on the battlefield. This is early um, early April, late March of 1865. We all know what happened. Um, we won. We, United States, we crushed the Confederacy. And Lincoln was able to go down and actually tour Richmond. It's amazing he did that in retrospect with all the people that did not like Lincoln in the South. Secured victory. He was stressed out. And, you know, it's like when you've gone through that long journey and you have an opportunity to relax. Ah, there was a show going to be Our American Cousin, April 14th. His wife invited him. And in fact... Lincoln also invited U.S. Grant, his wife, to come along, but Grant had other things to attend to. Stressed out and, you know, all this hard battleship and all the, all these battles, and you finally secured total victory and you had vanquished your opponent. You're stressed out. You go to our American cousin, and we all know what happened during that laugh line into that play. Lincoln got a bullet in the back of his head, and that shot was still resonating with us even today because of course in in addition to losing one of our greatest presidents we got andrew johnson as our american president now some of you would say that trump is one of our worst presidents it's pretty close between i don't know johnson was pretty awful i mean he it's it's neck and neck and I think uh, James Buchanan, maybe almost neck, they were pretty bad. And so why is this so important? Because now you have our commander-in-chief, Andrew Johnson, who believes in union, who believes the South needs to come to heel, but is believes in the institution of white supremacy, does not believe that black people are equal to us, to white people, and fights tooth and nail for every act of civil rights for people of color in the South and turns the other way as whites reestablish themselves in the South. So having immediately secured victory on the battlefield, you have a president who is continually sabotaging the very efforts that we had fought and spent so much blood and treasure and an exhausted population that is doing everything they can to avoid another civil war and another outbreak of the worst nightmare that many of them had ever experienced. And they were always, every decision they were making from that point forward was to avoid that. So Johnson is a disaster. You could not pick a worse person to lead Reconstruction. Almost a Southerner, a slaveholder, a white supremacist, and as what Ulysses Grant called him, an infernal liar, who also styled himself as a populist. So if you want to look at proto-Trump, you need to look no further than Andrew Johnson. 
So you have a situation where, though, fortunately, and here you Republicans that think I don't love you. I do love you. I love some of you. Well, I, I mean, you know who I really love, but the radical Republicans, these are these abolitionist Republicans who are in overwhelming majorities in the House and in the Senate. So here's where we have the radical Republicans are the heroes of this early stage of Reconstruction from 1865 to 1869. They passed the 13th Amendment. Everyone realizes slavery has to go. But here's the thing that makes Johnson, I think he's, he might be worse than Trump. Johnson opposes civil rights for black people. He imposes federal statutes to secure suffrage at the ballot box. He vehemently opposes uh, the 14th Amendment, equal protection. He does not think black people are entitled to equal protection under the laws. He views them to be his inferior. This enrages the Republicans, and they pass overwhelming majorities to overturn this veto. He vetoes the 14th Amendment. They send it to the states as a condition of readmittance. They got to get in the 14th Amendment. They have to pass, in the, pass these civil rights codes. So here we have this sort of the very first time that, you know, we have 1865 to 1869, we have an incompetent leader who is constantly pouring fire on the flames of the Civil War. So we're not securing any of the benefits, civil rights for blacks. And we're losing all of the power that was secured on the battlefield. And so what to do? I mean, he's in charge. So to give you an example of, of one of the things that he doesn't, that he, that he does, is he revokes, I think, one of the best military orders in the history of the United States. He invokes Field Order 15, uh, which was given in 1865, January 16th, 1865, by William T. Sherman in which he ordered 400,000 acres of land to be seized in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, and to give 40 acres apiece to 18,000 black families. How powerful is that? That the person who had toiled on the land is now going to be given that land that they had created. And, and, and this is essential to the promise that we need to consider today when we think about reparations. With reparations, all we are doing, all we are doing, is just living up to the promises that were made by our government. We are signatories to a social contract. We are the faithful executors and trustees of that contract. And a contract was made and it was revoked. And the statute of limitations on the evil of slavery is perpetual. We all know it is. And what does Andrew Johnson do to Field Order 15? He rips it up. He revokes it without cause, without justification, because his role is to preserve the Union. And that's what his goal is. It is not to emancipate black people. It is not to give them equal rights. It is not to give them their own liberation. It is to keep them in a subjugated state. And that is who he focuses on. It boggles the mind what would have happened had that field order 15, that promise been kept, and all of those people of color would have had access to land and capital and financing and the ballot box, what would have happened? Would we be in the situation we were in today? So we need to uphold that promise. 
So these are the types of things that Andrew Johnson does, and everyone realizes at some point he's so incompetent that this National Union Party, which was basically just sort of a glossed-over Republican Party, realizes that, look, dude, there is absolutely no way we are nominating you again. You are incompetent. You are basically, it's as if we've appointed someone from the South. Well, we did. He was a Southerner to run uh, Reconstruction of the South. It's like acting a fox to guard the, the chicken coop. He is the worst person that we can do. And he's so unpopular that if you can imagine as a sitting president, at least Trump got nominated by his own party, right? I, Johnson doesn't even get renominated. So and, and he tries to go back over to the Democrats and they won't nominate him. So he just retires at that point. Uh, and, and so what happens is, and this is why, the, to put context in what happened in 1877, is that it's a cluster for these first four years. And, of course, the only leader that can come in is my ultimate man crush, U.S. Grant, who I am now elevating. Top three American presidents, write this down, take it to the bank. The top three American presidents are FDR, Abraham Lincoln, and U.S. Grant. He's in my top three. Historians, you're wrong. He is number three. Grant has to clean up this mess of the first four years. And what Grant has two very good qualities that I think make him the perfect candidate. One, he is respected not only by uh, the North, but he is respected by the South. Um, a lot of the Southern military leaders, there were some that obviously fought on the wrong side, but realized they had lost. I mean, it's equivalent to South Africa. You know, the white supremacists there, they, they realized that the gig's up, man. We, we lost. Um, we got to move on with it. And we have to make peace. And generals like James Longstreet, who ended up participating in the United States Army on the behalf of the Union, um, accepted his, his verdict. Um, he, Grant, was involved in actually pushing back against Johnson. Uh, Johnson wanted to indict Robert A. Lee, and, and, and Johnson, Grant basically personally interfered to prevent that prosecution. So I, I guess mark that up for uh, Johnson that he wanted to prosecute Lee. Now, why would Grant do that? Now, before you're too hard on him, what would you do? Behind door number one is reopening um, hell, carnage. This wasn't just any war. This was a hundred times worse than the worst war that they had ever experienced. It was that bad. It, they, want, they did not want to, every decision they made for those next 12 years, between 1865 and 1867, they were worried that that was going to be what was going to happen. But Grant also has this great quality that he has to clean up so much, but he did fervently believe. He wasn't always great on issues of race, but he was always very practical. And I think what probably tripped, tipped him over is that he saw how those freed, freed slaves handled themselves, not only on the battlefield, but it's just engineers, you know, I, basically what he would do is, is once they would go liberate them, a lot of times, what were they going to do? They were going to help out the Union cause. And so he saw that they had shed blood. They had, they had fought and died for this country, and they had, their, 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 their blood had stained the American flag. They had earned the right for full emancipation. And that, indeed, that is what the war had, was fought for at the end. Not at the beginning, but at the end. That was, and he had he formed a bond with Abraham Lincoln, who always had the right instinct, but made tactical decisions to secure power, to secure victory in the long run. Much in the same way that LBJ, he was a little not great with some of those Southern whites, 
but he ultimately got the power and he delivered the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So no scrunchers. Sometimes you got to make compromises in the world as you find it. The other thing that made Grant incredibly effective, and this is why I have the man crush on Grant, is he had this, he was quiet. Um, someone said, you know, and commented on Grant that he could um, stay silent in seven different languages. He didn't talk a lot. But when he did talk, he was very clear. Um, but the other part of that is, is that you always knew where he stood. And unlike Johnson, he did not pour rhetorical fuel on the fires and on the burning embers of the Civil War. So we've got some tranquility. But here's what I also liked about Grant. Even though when he was very quiet, he also knew how to bring the lead. So he was very quiet. But when the South started, like in New Orleans and places in South Carolina, Grant knew how to, he knew how to take them to the woodshed. He knew how to get them in the right location. And so during this period of civil, rock, civil uh, rights, uh, Grant is essential in securing passage of the 15th Amendment. Uh, Grant, uh, finally, they did uh, implement military rule uh, broadly in the South. Uh, he was not hesitating. Uh, he would try not to avoid the use of military force, but if, if he had insurrections, which happened with a degree of frequency, uh, or that he felt the blacks were being disenfranchised or terrorized, he would not hesitate to send in military force. Uh, if necessary, he was empowered to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. That was necessary. He was not hesitate at all to live in the world as it is to use force where necessary to secure final victory of the Civil War. He did this in places like Mississippi. He did this in places like Alabama, uh, New Orleans. There was an uprising there. Uh, he, but he was essential in getting voting rights for people of color. He was essential for suppressing the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, he did a lot of really good things. But here's the deal. That did not make Grant very possible. That did not make Grant very popular in the South. You can imagine the white supremacists down there were seething, were seething. And these people had military experience. They're in their own territory. And you're asking white supremacists who had enslaved people to all of a sudden have to submit to the very people that they had enslaved. They were ready to take up arms. They were willing to fight. This is the original sin of the United States that we're still trying to exterminate. And they were, every decision that was made during this time period, especially as it applied to the South, was concern. That was the concern. I mean, you know, it's easy to look in hindsight. What, what would you do, though? You know, it's like the trolley car from philosophy, where what, what, what would happen if, you know, you're in a trolley car full of people and you're going down the, the, the railroad or the, or the train tracks. And if you, um, in the trolley car, would you run over the person on the, on the train tracks if it meant saving a lot of other people's lives? It's, 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 it's hard. And so, you know, again, everyone realizes that slavery is a total evil. But the other part of it, too, is they were so numerous, the, 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 the structure there, and they still had a lot of guns. And they were really worried about getting back to Civil War. But Grant basically makes the right choice. He says, you know what, I understand that, but we have to win the war. We have to secure the peace and we have to be tough. 
But after two terms in office, remember at that point, they still had the George Washington two terms rule. Um, it was not constitutional at that point, but he decides not to run for a third term, even though he's encouraged. So we have, this gets us to the election of 1877. We got two competing candidates. We got Rutherford, Hayes, and Samuel Tilden. And just as a footnote here, this is actually pretty interesting because, you know, history teacher, usually it's taught by a guy um, that's first name is called Coach. And somehow they managed to take these super interesting pieces and parts of American history and make them incredibly dull and boring. And I remember like Reconstruction, it's sort of like, you know, you see a movie, it's a civil war. And at least there's action, right? And it's this drama, this great evil. We're trying to exterminate slavery. And then you get Reconstruction. And Reconstruction, it's just, it's sort of like this boring, you know, second chapter. And and then, of course, who wrote a lot of the history of the South? A lot of the Southern historians that basically tarnished Grant's legacy. They try to basically say that, oh, anyone could have won the war. And he was basically just a, just a butcher. And so they totally tarnished the legacy of U.S. Grant, make him out to be some corrupt guy. And he was not himself corrupt. He was very trusting, uh, which made him a horrible business person. But, you know, but in the, on the battlefield, he could see things very, very clearly. And isn't that interesting, people, too, that you can be a total failure in one domain, but in another name, domain, you can be one of the best ever. I think that's interesting. I'm going to do another one on, on the domain match. But so Grant is in here in 1877, just f- finishing out his second term. And we have Rutherford Hayes is the Republican nominee. And he, he's Rutherford B. Hayes. He's sort of like James B. Garfield. You know, we always consider these, these posts, these, these, these presents between Lincoln and Roosevelt as sort of like total mediocre. But Rutherford B. Hayes, he, he fought in the 18, he's fought in the war. He was actually injured on the battlefield five times. He was an ardent uh, abolitionist. He was from Ohio, which which even now, like Ohio, that's a good state to be from if you're going to be a national leader. And we also had Samuel Tilden of the North. And I haven't done a lot of deep dive in terms of Samuel Tilden, but I'd often wonder, like, well, he's a Northern Democrat. Why the heck would he be so, you know, cozy with a set of these Southern Democrats? Well, there's a lot of people in the North, including in New York, that had a large Irish population that weren't necessarily jumping for joy over the Civil War. I mean, these were people that didn't really care. They just wanted, you know, they wanted their Homestead Act. They wanted to be able to do what they needed to do uh, to, you know, to, to, live their, to live their life, right? They didn't want to die. They didn't want to go have to serve. There were draft riots in New York in, in you know, early parts of the Civil War. And so we have Samuel Tilden from the New York, uh, who's the Democratic nominee. And so here's what we have happen. If you think this election was a cluster, okay, so, so let's go back to this election, we essentially have everyone's participating. All these states have been readmitted. And we have the following events that transpire. The election comes to a conclusion on November 7th of 1876. At the time, it appears that Samuel Tilden had won. He had 184 electoral votes and needed 185 to win. On election night, it appeared that Tilden was carrying Florida and was carrying Louisiana and Hayes was barely holding on to South Carolina. Keep in mind that Tilden only needed one more vote, so he he basically only had to keep on one of two of Florida or Louisiana 
or um, and that was it. And then he would be he'd be one, and everyone agreed that he had won the presidency. And so Grant, as of November seventh of eighteen seventy six, is 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 basically instructing his his people. Okay, it appears Tilden has won. Um, let's start doing the transition. He he's the guy. Until reports of fraud start coming out of Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina. Which, who are we kidding? There probably was a lot of fraud, probably on both sides. And uh, what happens is, is that there's, there's concern. I mean, are, are they stuff in the ballot box? I mean, keep in mind that Lincoln, I'm sorry, Grant had actually sent in troops to New Orleans to basically prevent an insurrection in New Orleans. Um, in 18, that fall, uh, Grant had to send in troops to South Carolina uh, to quell uh, disorder in South Carolina. So there's a lot going on uh, during that election, and the Democrats were, they were apoplectic at the possibility of losing power. So Tilden, Tilden, Hayes, he only needs one more vote. It seems like he's going to win, but they think about fraud. So Lincoln then appoints people to go down and investigate they ultimately determine that oh, there was some fraud, and when they do some of the recounts, this is what happens. Florida goes to Hayes. Louisiana goes to Hayes. And South Carolina stays with Hayes. So he wins all of them. And tilted people are understandably upset by that, especially in those states, about we lost all of these, you only needed one more. I, I mean, it's like, come on. It's like playing hearts where you're shooting the moon. You can't take all of them. They're apoplectic. And at that point, the country is on a razor's edge about civil war. What is going to happen? And to make matters worse, um, when they actually then try to certify the election in December, they have two competing slates of electors, one for Hayes and the other for Hilden, and and, and they're different. They're different. And to make matters even worse, the chambers are split. So the, I, I believe that the Republicans weren't even in control of, of the democratically controlled chamber. And they were not going to be able to resolve it that way. But somehow they were able to convince enough Southern Democrats to put in a um, commission to basically resolve this and to sort out who, who, to, who to trust. And... The, they essentially had five members, which would be five Republicans, five Democrats, and, and five members of the courts. And all the votes were 8787878787, including the final certification of the Electoral College, which is 87 Hayes over Tilden. And Tilden people are like, really? Are you really going there? Uh, what's the deal? And so normally you really love deals. I I love deals, and I love, by the way, I love, and it pains me to have to say this, but we should not have done reconciliation with the South, that we needed military rule longer. It pains me to say that, but the problem is, is you cannot have truth and reconciliation in which one party does not seek forgiveness. That's, that's the difference with, with the South African piece of it, is you had one party that was seeking forgiveness, the other one that was willing to give it. I'll do a whole separate podcast on that. But so ultimately, we don't know exactly what happened, but the pretty obvious compromise um, occurred in which in some backroom deal, the following promise was made that, look, 
Republicans knew what the fears of the Southern whites were. They knew that they hated Reconstruction. And they said, look, you give us the election and drop your objection. And in exchange, the military will be withdrawn from the South. And once the military is withdrawn from the South, we know what's going to happen. That meant the effective end of civil rights for people of color. That means that all of the progress that had been made in terms of electing Republicans in the South that had been made, there'd been several black leaders that had been elected um, in the South. All of the um, reparations and the restitution that was going to be done as part of this ongoing process of, of, of you know, 40 acres and a mule. Remember, we have Field Order 15 that was revoked by Johnson. Well, you know, Grant, that we wanted to do some of these things. There were these Freedmen Bureau that was, was designed to try to get people of color back on their feet. I mean, they'd been enslaved for, you know, since the founding of the Republic, since the first settlers hit the, hit the shores of the New World. And they made that offer in this back room, and it's, no one's ever found any writing to prove this, but it's obviously what happened, and the South accepts. And my friends, this is one of the saddest moats times of American history. The fact of the matter is, is that the United States sold out people of color for power. They were exhausted by the war and they gave in. In the biography of U.S. Grant, Gene Edward Smith describes it as follows. The rights of African Americans were sacrificed at the altar of national reconciliation. Grant's reputation suffered severely. White supremacist historians, the dominant school of American historiography from the 1880s to the 1950s, savaged his efforts to protect the freedmen just as many in the West ridiculed his peace policy towards Native Americans, sacrificed, the rights of African Americans were sacrificed at the altar of national reconciliation. And of course, we all know what happened. Reparations were never given. Rights were not extended. And for the next 100 years, people of color were not even allowed to vote and were by law considered second-class citizens. This is the American version of apartheid. A white supremacist culture takes root, becomes extremely powerful and wealthy, and rewrites history according to how it wanted it to be. One of the reasons why you think that Grant was an incompetent president and that Grant was an incompetent general because of the historians that had tarnished his legacy. The rights of blacks were sacrificed at the altar of reconciliation. And that's what I was getting at. And we are now paying the price for that. We saw a Confederate flag that was brought to the United States Capitol January 6th of 2021. And we have a entrenched culture that fears people of color voting, 
that fears them taking power. And as much as that protestation is denied, I think that is an unalterable fact. And in fact, I normally don't like to read quotes in detail in a podcast, but I wanted to read um, uh, what Grant had said uh, after the war as he was reflecting on uh, Reconstruction. He says, looking back over the whole policy of Reconstruction, it seems to me that the wisest thing would have been able to continue for some time the military rule. That would have enabled the Southern people to pull themselves together and repair material losses. Military rule would have been just to all. Uh, the black who wanted freedom, he uses the word Negro here, but I, I, even though that's not the other N-word, I still don't like using that word, so I say black instead of that N-word. Military rule would have been just to all the black who wanted freedom, the white man who wanted protection, the northern man who wanted union. As state after state showed a willingness to come into the union, not on their terms, but upon ours, I would have admitted them. Now notice what he's saying here. Not on their terms, but ours. Rights for people of color. You treat them with dignity. You, you, you encourage their emancipation. You uphold their human dignity, that they are our countrymen. They belong. They have fought and died, and they're every bit as equal as you. The Southerners had a lot of chutzpah. I mean, they got crushed on the battlefield. And they're, you know, up through like April of 1865, they're still trying to cut a deal with Lincoln. <laughs> they're sending emissaries. February saying, hey, let's do an armistice. He's like, what the hell are you talking about? I, we, we we're about ready to beat you guys. And for the next 12 years... They, they considered themselves the victim, right? So they had enslaved people for hundreds of years, and they were the victims. And they were the ones complaining and all this stuff. And ultimately, there was just enough of them that people were afraid of going back to the war. So, but notice what he's saying here is that on terms of our choosing, not theirs, because, of course, they're choosing to let white people back into control, and we don't consider black people our equal. But then he said, quote, the trouble about the military rule in the South was that our people did not like it. Volta, right? It was not in accordance with our institutions. I am now clear that it would have been better to have postponed suffrage reconstruction state governments for 10 years and held the South in a territorial condition, but we made our scheme and must do what we can do with it. Suffrage once given can never be taken away. And all that remains now is that to make good that gift by protecting those that received it. And here he talks, I think, about an essential character of the Southern people, which, of course, South, you guys, I love you Southerners, by the way. I don't like the white supremacists, but, you know, I have a lot of progressive friends from the South. I'm not impugning all Southern white people. I'm not doing that. What I'm doing is coming to terms with the painful part of our history and how we can heal it. Because I am going to offer, hopefully, a little bit of good news. That I think that we, we can do this, we can get through it, but we need to, we need to think about this. But Grant continues... If the southern people would only put aside the madness of their leaders, they would see that they were richer now than before the war. Money is not held in the hands as before the war, and per capita people are richer, and that, after all, is what we want to see in a republic. Take cotton. Before the war, a crop of 2.5 million, 3 million million hails is at 6 pence a pound was an immense result. Now we have crops of 5 million bales at 10 cents a pound. 
In this, you see the success of the black as a laborer. He has worked steadily during this time of excitement. While his old masters have been declaiming upon their misfortune, their ruin, their oppression, he has given the South the material prosperity that it has never had before the war. What a commentary that this old story that they're claiming that black people can only work under the lash. And he's saying, look, the success of our country lies in equality, and emancipation, and liberation. It's not something to fear. It is something to welcome. So here we are, a um, hundred years later, this boring period of history. And I think actually the, the Compromise of 1877 may be one of the worst compromises ever made in the history of our cup. Comp- Normally I like compromise. Normally I love reconciliation. I, I, I don't believe in getting your own way. But there's a few times you can't compromise. You know, the Crittenden Compromise before the Civil War, that was a deal where we would have agreed to not only keep slavery in perpetuity for the South, but to actually ban any constitutional amendment in the South, ever. So permanently allow slavery. Well, that, that's, that's a bad compromise. Um, the, the compromises with the South, and they had to be made at times, but that was a bad compromise. And I think here, the Hayes-Tilden Compromise uh, is one of the compromises that may be one of the worst compromises in the history of the American Republic. But let me end on a little bit of a positive note. Let's talk about Field Order 15. This was a promise made that was a right and privilege that was secured on the battlefield, and they were seizing property by people that had rose up against uh, the country in rebellion against the United States. On that battlefield, the blood, sweat, and tears of hundreds of thousands of men had secured victory, and the emancipation of people of color was a central fruit of that victory and that they were entitled to the land that they had helped produce. And a promise was made for 40 acres. Some people think that this is where 40 acres and a mule came from. And that promise was revoked by proto-Trump, Andrew Johnson. So let's think about two ways that we can get ourselves out of this mess. One is to give full force to Field Order 15. So we're just recommitting to something that was wrongfully revoked. Remember, the statute of limitations, now I'm not talking legally, there is actually a statute of limitations, but I'm talking about morally. The statute of limitations on the institution of slavery is perpetual in terms of remedying the evils arising from it. And by the way, statute of limitations, that can always be, as a policy matter, you can always, the state can always waive that. But as a moral matter, we don't need the state. We can make our own choice and that we need to uphold Field Order 15. Now, what am I talking about? That we're going to seize a whole bunch of land and redistribute it 40 acres? No, 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 no. We're not going to do that because, one, it's not going to happen. Two, I do believe in private property rights. Um, That decision was made 150 years ago. But I think in terms of the principle that we talk about, we need to talk about to, to give this process, we need to have Field Order 15 in its concept carried to full fruition. So let's just take a valuation on what those 40 acres would have been valued at in 1865. And at a regular rate of interest, what would those values be right now? A substantial sum. Um, and I think for people of color, now how, that, now how the details of that would be worked out, I think we as a nation can figure that out. But I do think that the economic injustice, because think about all the cascading events that happened from 1877 is that people of color in the South were basically held in not de jure slavery, but de facto slavery. 
They couldn't survive. They didn't get an education. Um, they're, they're kept in, in perpetual servitude. They then flee to the north, and then the north segregates them and keeps them from accessing all these institutions and does not allow them access to all these different... Now, there were some exceptions to that, but... You know, racism in the North, as we all know, um, it's not as manifest, but it is every bit as real. And so you, you essentially have a de facto slavery reinstituted with white supremacy and American apartheid. And they flee to the North. And where do they go? To the, to the ghettos in the, um, in, the north, in the North part of the, the United States. And they found some opportunity. It's a little bit better there. Um, there was not Jim Crow, but wow, people of color. Oh, oh, I mean, I just... But, you know, the good news is, is that we can take those promises of the Freedmen's Bureau, some of those things that were already made as promises. It's like when we uphold the treaties to Native Americans. All we're doing is upholding the statutes and treaties that have already been negotiated. And promises were made that were not kept by, the, by Andrew Johnson. The second thing that we can do is we need to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission modeled on South Africa. I do think that South Africa is a parallel state to the United States. The difference is that South Africa had 5 million whites and about 20 million blacks, and whites were numerically um, more, more, more numerous. So the reality is, is even with full emancipation, it has still been a, a very much of a difficult project to ensure that the rights, civil rights of black people are given. And we've been in continual denial since that point. Even now, I think we are. But here's the deal. Here's, here's what I think, and some of you maybe think this is a little controversial. But people in the college campus, okay, I want you to think about something. There does need to be this Truth and Reconciliation Commission. One, we need to find out the truth of American slavery and its impact. And, and who knows, maybe we can get a historian to look and find the documents as to where that actual compromise in 1877 occurred. But we absolutely have to give, have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission with, with you know, these white power structures. But forgiveness has to be given, too. And notice, too, with the, with the reparations, there's restitution here. So there's going to be some money where our mouth is. But there has to be not only accountability, but there has to be forgiveness. And what I've seen, too, like with the phenomenon of Trump, if you think that um, in terms of where we're at right now, um, liberalism has no part in that, you know, uh, professors, if, if not manning the barricades and you're, you're just out there in your comfortable jobs and, you, and you're not really finding common cause with the working class, that's a problem. And th where you never confess your own sins and you're always shrilly denouncing everyone else. I have so many people that I know or I've observed that never, they're, they're perfect, Everyone else is at fault. They have no problem. Only everyone will listen to them. Well, you know what? We're all incredibly flawed people. And no one's defending any of the people that supported Trump. I'm not. I'm not. But if, if we think we're actually going to have reconciliation uh, without giving forgiveness, but, you know, again, to, to the people that, you know, we don't want to necessarily reconcile with, they have to seek forgiveness. I think that's part of the problem is we see that same phenomena that U.S. Grant had talked about um, in describing the character of the South. I mean, this whole notion that, you know, we have these white people that are storming the, the castle that think they're the victims. I mean, that, that, that's what blows my mind. I mean, you either laugh or you cry. But they, so to some degree, so, 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 so liberal progressives, um, first of all, you know, we have our own issues we need to work on. Um, it's a moot point at this point because forgiveness is not being sought, but we have to be willing to, to reconcile. 
And the other part of, um, of I don't think we have a choice. And I, and I think, you know, in fairness to those decisions, 1865 to 1877, when you're in the saddle and you're having to make these decisions, I mean, the country is on a knife's edge. And they're terrified of returning to the Civil War. Uh, it's, it's, it's not easy. What do you do? It's the trolley car experiment. I mean, door number one is reopening uh, hundreds of thousands of deaths. And to say that that wasn't a risk, I mean, there was mobilizing. I mean, it, it was happening. It was, it was an issue. But on the other hand, we had the emancipation and securing the civil liberties, which, of course, is central to the American project. So they made very tough decisions, which I think ultimately were wrong, but, you know, uh, it's sort of where we are. So as a country, we need to have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't know if there's any other way, but here's the other thing too, Dems, I just want to commit this to you. Virtue signaling is not the way to do it. Inspiration is the way to do it. Forgiveness is the way to do it. Look at how Nelson Mandela... Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi did it. They did it through forgiveness. They did it through peace. They did it through inspiration. One thing I liked about Mandela, and I think maybe even MLK towards the end of his little career, was maybe a little more nuanced on this, but he also did have the Armalite just in case, which I think is, which I actually think is fine. I mean, apartheid was evil. No one would stand by that. It was necessary. Most states are birthed with some military conflict. That's just the reality of it. We had to use force against you know various evil regimes over the course of history. So ultimately, but ultimately though, Mandela inspired. He was positive. We essentially need the progressive version of, uh, of Ronald Reagan. I think probably the closest I've seen it to it um, in my own lifetime would be Harold Hughes. I think Obama got us close to there. So for those of you who criticize Obama. I, uh, I just don't think you really realize how many Trump voters he got, I, I think, which he was inspiring. He didn't scrunch his nose. And, and the problem with Trump is that he appealed to the, the, the darkness within us as opposed to the light. We need to, we need to appeal to the, to the good because I do believe each one of us, I'm doing this podcast on a Sunday morning, I believe that each one of us has the potential for good. So, friends of the Rockney cast, this was a more in-depth Rockney cast. And I'm going to hope to do more of these. I've been trying to do some smaller ones. We're still working on format. We're still working on various things. Check out my website at rockneycole.com. I'd also like to remind you that if you like the content on this show, that you'll click on my website, buy anything on Amazon, and I'll get credit for it. It helps me be able to have more time to be able to do these podcasts. I hope you have learned as much as I have. I continue. If you look at my book recommendations, uh, there's the book by Gene Edward Smith. I strongly encourage you to read on that. I've, I've, I've probably read the book five times now. It's that good. Gene Edward Smith, U.S. Grant. And let's, let's, let's recover uh, the promise of Reconstruction and finish the Civil War because there's only two options. One is you know, potential insurrection, or one is peace, forgiveness, and reconciliation, and emancipation of everyone, and reconciliation and forgiveness. And I think that is the only choice we have moving forward. Peaceful, inspirational, and forgiveness. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast as much as I've had putting it on. Until next time on The Rockney Cast. <laughs>